Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's wonderful to see you all today. Over the last few weeks, we have been talking about the promises of Messiah as we've walked through these Advent weeks together. We have also pointed out that the brightest promises of Messiah have come in the darkest moments of history. And today we're going to see an example of that in the Christmas prophecy of the prophet Micah from the 8th century BC. So if you would turn with me to Micah chapter 5, beginning in the first verse, you can either read along in your bulletin or read along with the screens or just read along with your, in your own Bible. But here is what the Lord said through the prophet Micah, his first promise of Christmas. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel." And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. As we read these ancient words, help us to understand not only the context in which they were given, but help us also, O Lord, to understand how they apply to us today. Amidst the changing words of our generation, speak to us your eternal word that does not change. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, for it is in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. I love it that each week we come in the sanctuary, there's something just a little bit different, something that that reminds us that Christmas is nearly upon us this morning. It was coming in and seeing the poinsettias that have been placed here by our sanctuary flower committee. They're just such a beautiful explosion of color in our sanctuary along with all of the other arrangements that have been put here. But there are other things as well. The children's choir performing on video. How was that this morning? What did you think about that? That was wonderful. That's I said, you know, we have two moms and, and probably several other parents in this group. We have at least two moms up here in the chancel area. I can't even imagine what it would take to get children that young to sing into a recorder for a video. I can't even imagine what that was like. But we've also got other things going on. Our Christmas pageant today is going to be unlike any other Christmas pageant we've had before. It's going to be a drive-through event. But that reminds us, too, that Christmas is nearly here. What an exciting day. I hope that you will all take advantage of it. There are just some things that remind us that Christmas is nearly here. Now, one of the things that always seems to remind me, and more recently has seemed to remind me more and more that Christmas is here, is the number of advertisements you see for Hallmark Channel Christmas movies. How many of you all are familiar with the Hallmark Channel Christmas movies? The rest of you are lying. 
because according to research, the Hallmark Channel Christmas movies are some of the most popular Christmas seasonal movies of any point in the year. They are beginning to rank up there with such classics as A Wonderful Life or A Christmas Story or all those other Christmas, uh, all those other Christmas films. They've become a part of the season. Now, I thought that it was just something that happened occasionally. I thought this was just a part of the Hallmark Channel's programming. But recently I learned, and listen to this, recently I learned that the Hallmark Channel is going to produce for, or excuse me, has produced for this Christmas season 40, that's 4-0, new Christmas movies for 2020. 40 new Christmas movies for one Christmas season. Can you believe that? If you're wondering what my source on that is, it's Martha Stewart Living. Uh, I just read an article about this because I was curious how many of these movies are produced every year. 40 for just this year. Now, the article went on to describe the power of these movies and why they are so popular. If you want to know why these Hallmark Christmas movies are so popular, it can be summed up in one word. The word is predictability. They are popular because they are predictable. This is not just a hunch. This is actually uh, uh, the, the, uh, the conclusion of research. According to Dr. Pamela Rutledge, a behavioral scientist and director of the Media Psychology Research Center and Media Psychology faculty at Fielding Graduate University, the predictability of each film's plot and inevitable happy ending is exactly what keeps viewers coming back for more. She writes that the human brain loves patterns and the predictability is cognitively rewarding. The enduring characters, the merry settings, the heartwarming endings, all have key emotional benefits. Dr. Rutledge even says that the predictable stories like this enable us to suspend belief. And that suspension of belief actually brings us a kind of healing, a catharsis that we really need in a busy, hectic, uncertain world. Now, I don't think I need to really make the case that we are not living in a Hallmark movie this year. There is nothing predictable about this year or this Christmas. And, though, as, and as though to add insult to injury, COVID-19 seems to be the Grinch that's taking away our Christmas, our traditions, our family rituals, no travel, restrictions on private gatherings. Yes, we can still have church services, but now even the World Health Organization has put out a statement saying that we can't hug each other anymore. I didn't know that there was a statutory authority for hugging, but apparently the World Health Organization has said that it has the authority to make that declaration. So I asked myself, is a Hallmark movie, a predictable movie that provides catharsis and healing through routine and predictability, is that what we really need this year or do we need something else? Well, I think we need something else. This year, we don't need to find our hope in comforting, predictable fiction because unfortunately, as we all know by now, sentimental fiction doesn't have the solidity, the stamina to stand up to real crisis. No, this year, we need something more. This year, we need something real. 
This year, we need the real Christmas story more than ever because the real Christmas story is about a real God who sent a real Savior into a real world to give us real hope. This is why we need the Christmas story this year. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen that the brightest moments, excuse me, the brightest promises of Messiah have come in the darkest moments of history. The promises of Messiah came first in the expulsion from the garden, and then in the exile, then the occupation, and then in persecution. And today we've read a prophecy of Christmas that came in another difficult and dark moment in the history of Israel. The Lord spoke to the prophet Micah in one of the darkest moments in the kingdom's history. Micah said, siege is laid upon us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the, tre- on the cheek. In 701 BC, the kingdom of Judah came under attack of the Assyrian empire. The Assyrian king, Sennacherib, invaded Judah and put Jerusalem under siege. The story, if you want to read it, is found in the book of 2 Kings, chapters 18 and 19. Now this siege was a terrifying prospect for the people. The Assyrians, you see, had a reputation for brutality. If their enemies did not submit, then the defeated were subjected to the most inhumane atrocities. The Assyrians believed in making an example of those that they had conquered so that they could send a message to the next city, to the next tribe, to the next people, so that they would surrender before the battle even began. Now, I want us to consider this word siege for just a moment. A siege is different from a battle. In a battle, you meet, you fight, and you win or you lose, and it's over. But in a siege, you are surrounded. You're cut off from your resources. You're cut off from help and family and friends. You are isolated. And it goes on and on until you starve or decide to try and break out. But it goes on and on. And pretty soon, the other people inside the walls with you, as tensions grow, as stress mounts, they begin to look like the enemy too as you compete for scarce resources within the walls. And the people inside the walls become enemies just like people outside the walls. A siege forces you to wait And it gives you lots and lots of time to dread the worst. A siege isn't just a physical battle. It's a battle of heart. It's a battle of will. It's a battle of patience. And it's a battle of faith. It becomes a spiritual battle. Because it's a battle between hope and despair. Wondering if any help will ever come or if you are all alone. It is a spiritual battle as well as a violent physical conflict. And in 701 BC, the armies of Sennacherib were standing before the walls of Jerusalem. And the Assyrians even sent a messenger to King Hezekiah with a message for the people of Jerusalem. He said this, Thus says the great king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for you? In whom do you now trust? 
that you have rebelled against the king of Assyria. The armies of Sennacherib were just too powerful. The Assyrian messenger even said, you know what? You don't have the soldiers. You don't have the allies. And it looks like even your God has turned against you. He even taunted the people of God saying, come now, let's make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can find the warriors to ride them. So arrogant, so over the top, so self-assured were the Assyrians. And so heartless, so in despair were the people of Israel. Finally, the pagan king asked Hezekiah a very pointed question. He demanded to know, on what do you rest this trust of yours? In whom do you now trust? The message of the Assyrians was clear. Give up, surrender, and all will be fine. But if you trust in the Lord your God, you're going to die. On what do you rest this trust of yours? In whom do you now trust? That's a question that we need to be asking ourselves today and in the weeks to come. On what do you rest this trust of yours? In whom do you now trust? Those were the words ringing in the ears of the king and the people. But it was into this dark moment that God delivered one of his brightest promises of hope. The Christmas prophecy of Micah is a promise that tells us that God will send a savior. And it tells us about the kind of savior that God would send. He says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, whom, uh, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. You see, there was nothing and no one inside Jerusalem that could save God's people. So the Lord came to Micah and said, your help will come from an unexpected place. Now, Bethlehem was not an important city. At that, time, it, at that time, its only claim to fame was that it was the hometown of David, Israel's greatest king. I can just imagine there was a historical marker just outside of town as you came into the city. It was not a financial center. It was not a population center. It was not a presidio or a fortress city. God even says that it is too little to be counted among the clans of Judah. What that literally means is that at the time, Bethlehem was so small and unimportant that it was too small to even be shown on a map. It was too small to muster a militia of fighting men to defend the nation. It had nothing to offer. It was too insignificant to matter. Even its tax base was so small that if it disappeared, no one would care. But this reference to the stature of Bethlehem is not just a detail about the place of the Messiah's birth. It's also an allusion, allusion, not illusion, an allusion, a reference, a testimony to the coming Messiah and his character. It's not just about the town 
It's about the person. Not only was the son of God to be born in in an insignificant town, he was going to surrender his divine privilege to be born in a stable, to be cradled in a manger, to be homeless on his first night in the world that he had come to save. It's reflected in the words of Paul when he wrote, even though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be exploited, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, even to the point of death on the cross. The first important point of of Micah's Christmas prophecy is that Micah tells us that the Messiah, born in Bethlehem will be humble enough to love us. The Messiah will care about us enough to become one of us. He's not going to send a stand-in. He's not going to send a representative. He's not going to send a stunt double. The Messiah will be Emmanuel, God with us. He will come personally He will care enough not just to live the life we live, but even to die the death that we must die. So the Messiah will be humble enough to love us. And just as David had come from humble beginnings and was even considered the least of his brothers, so the Messiah would come from one of the least of Judah's cities. The kings born in Jerusalem had failed, but the Messiah born in lowly Bethlehem, he will triumph. He is a savior for everyone, for the rich and for the poor, for the exalted and for the lowly, for the great and the small, for the king and the people, for the famous and the forgotten. Second, the connection to David was not just an important historical detail. The Bethlehem connection was also spiritually and symbolically significant because it was a testimony that God is faithful enough to be trusted. God made a covenant promise to David. God promised that his line would not fail and that his people would not fall. But at that moment... But the Assyrians surrounding Jerusalem, that promise looked pretty uncertain. Everything was falling apart. Micah had witnessed the destruction of the northern kingdom of Samaria, and he was predicting the fall and exile of Judah. Israel wasn't a power on the rise. It was declining into oblivion. But even though the enemies of the king were sharpening their spears and rolling out their siege engines, Micah's trust never wavered. He believed that God would uphold his covenant promise to David. From you, Bethlehem, shall come for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And that promise was fulfilled 700 years later. As the angel told Mary, you will bear a son. And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. 
in the people's darkest hour, God gave the prophet Micah a vision and a promise that the birth of the Messiah would prove that God is faithful to his word and that God is faithful enough to be trusted. But the Messiah will not just be humble and faithful. Micah also says, in this moment, it seems, of Israel's greatest weakness, that the Messiah will be powerful enough to save us. Even though he begins in obscurity and humility, the Messiah will rise to strength and he will rise to majesty. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they shall dwell secure. For now he, the Messiah, shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. In a moment of Israel's greatest weakness, when it seemed that the light of Israel was about to be put out, God says, the Messiah will not only be strong, he will be great. He will come and he will change the world. And let me ask you this, who has changed the world more than Jesus of Nazareth? Who has changed the world more than Jesus of Christ. There is no force or stronghold that can oppose him. There is nothing that can separate us from his love. There is nothing that can tell us of his defeat. He is alive. Death could not beat him. Time cannot forget him. History cannot ignore him. Pop culture cannot pervert him. Science and philosophy cannot outthink him. Injustice cannot escape him. Nature must obey him. And we can never out his mercy and his forgiveness and the love that he has for us as he demonstrated it on the cross. This is a savior who can not only make a difference in our lives, but can make a difference in the world now and forever. And he's just getting started. One day, the kingdom that was inaugurated in his birth, in his life, in his death, or death and resurrection and his ascension will be brought to fulfillment in his return. Because Micah's prophecy is not just a promise about the Messiah's first coming. It is also a prophecy, a revelation about his second coming. His dominion will be worldwide and all those who have been scattered and lost will be gathered and come home. As Micah says in chapter 4, they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree and no one shall make them afraid. The Messiah will bring all people together. Every nation, tribe, and tongue will fall down and worship before him in his kingdom. And we will have peace unlike anything we've ever known. A peace that passes understanding. Revelation says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And then everyone will finally see his kingdom vision. And truly, as Paul says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
like his birthplace. The Messiah was humble and obscure and poor in his first coming. But Micah, as well as scripture, tells us that he will come again in great glory to gather his flock into his kingdom and to prove once and for all that the Lord is powerful enough to save us. Micah was saying that our situation is desperate. We're in a terrible position. We're under siege. Let me ask you this. How many of you have felt under siege over the last 10 months? Cut off. Isolated. Maybe a little bit claustrophobic. Maybe you're starting to feel desperate. COVID is not just a battle. It's a siege that starves us and never seems to end. Like Hezekiah, Micah, Isaiah, and the people of, of Jerusalem, we're under that kind of siege, a spiritual battle that tests our patience, strains our endurance, exposes our weaknesses, and pushes our relationships. It strains our trust in one another and our institutions to the fraying point. It undermines our confidence, and it gnaws at our peace. And after a while, it's as though the Assyrian king is standing outside of our houses, outside of our city walls, asking the same question he asked Hezekiah. On what do you rest this trust of yours? In whom do you now trust? It's a question for us, just as it was for them. But let me finish that story of the siege of Jerusalem. The Assyrians went too far. They had mocked Israel, and they had mocked her God. And so while Micah was talking to the people, the prophet Isaiah was in the palace talking to the king. And here's what Isaiah told Hezekiah. Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. And then later that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, there were all the dead bodies. You want to know who I trust? I trust the God who keeps his promises. God promised that he would lift the siege, and he did. God did not abandon the people under siege, God promised that he would save the people. And the Lord kept his promise. And the book, of, the book of Kings, 2 Kings, tells us that the Assyrians were so freaked out that they left. So many bodies, so many men lost. Sennacherib marched his armies home to Nineveh. And when he got home to Nineveh, there he was murdered by his own sons while praying in his temple. Just as the Lord had said would happen. On what do you trust? On what do you rest this trust of yours? In whom do you trust? The Christmas prophecy of Micah is the declaration that we can trust 
a certain God in an uncertain world. We don't need to find our hope in predictable platitudes or bromides or comforting fiction. We need the real Christmas story more than ever. We need the real God who sent a real Savior into a real world to give us real hope. Micah tells us that God's help is real and that he has sent a Savior that is powerful enough to save us, who can make a difference in our lives now and forever and in whom we can find the peace we need for whatever siege or battle, temptation or test awaits us. He has sent a Messiah who is faithful enough to be trusted, a God who keeps his promises and who will never leave us or forsake us and was willing to prove that with his own life. And we have a Savior who is humble enough to love us, a Savior who not only got down in the mud and the blood and the mess and the stress of human life, but who became one of us to prove that he understands us that he knows us, and that he cares. On what do you rest this trust of yours? In whom do you now trust? Will you pray with me? O God of Israel, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, We come to you because from ancient times you told us that you are the God who can be trusted. That you are the God who has the power to make a difference in our lives. And in your son Jesus Christ you proved that you are a God who is willing to give up everything who for the sake of humility would give up his own life to prove how much you love us. Lord, even though we feel besieged, even though we feel surrounded by powers bigger than us, help us to trust in you. The God who lifted the siege of Jerusalem and the God who sent his son to be Emmanuel, God with us. Oh Lord, We put our trust in you. For it is in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen.